morning from me, the other Tim, Tim Ford. I've been here once in the morning before and a couple of evenings, but um, if you haven't met me before, I'm uh, a Baptist minister by uh, background and um, at the moment uh, preaching around different churches. I'm not a, a church of my own at the moment, so I'm uh, pleased to be with you and sharing in your time. This morning, we've been given the uh, section of Romans 12 to look at together, so I'm going to read that to you now, verses 1 to 13, and our, our title for this morning, our sermon, it's not mine, it's ours, together, is called to be involved. So let me read this to you. I urge you, my brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Father, would you come amongst us by your Holy Spirit now and give us a sense that it's you that's speaking to us. Lord, take my human words. May they be meaningful as people listen, but may they more so listen to your spirit. For your name's sake. Amen. So it's called to be church, called to be involved, and uh, I want to uh, draw you into uh, a picture uh, which some of you may be more familiar with than uh, others. It's a picture of uh, a scanning machine in a hospital. Who's familiar with a kind of realistic version of this picture? Anybody? Yes, you may have been in it. Um, I've not uh, thus far had to go in it. I have no desire and wish to in the future, but um, we do it for good reasons, don't we? It shows our insides, uh, so maladies of all kinds can be diagnosed and treated to improve our health. So it's a painful uh, or worrying experience, but for a good motivation. Now, how about if, uh, if God had given us 
a spiritual version of this scanner. So it wasn't looking for um, physical ailments on the inside, but it was looking uh, for the spiritual equivalent, spiritual maladies, spiritual ailments, spiritual deficiencies, spiritual things that ultimately will kill us uh, instead of being of God to bring us life. Would you be willing to go in it? Would you go into it with a sense of, I do want to go into it, but I'm also quite afraid? Or would you say, there is no way I'm going in that? Well, in a sense, uh, if you're a Christian, you don't have an option. Um, It's important that we all uh, go uh, into it. And, um, And we come out of it feeling better and more right before God. Romans 12 comes on the back of, funnily enough, Romans 1 to 11. And Romans 1 to 11 are sometimes called Paul's deepest teaching. And as a child, I come to, came to understand that when people said a preacher was deep, it just basically meant they couldn't understand him or her. Uh, and um, if, if 1 to 11 is Paul's deep preaching, teaching, then chapter 12 is very much a bring, is about bringing that depth to the surface, making it more obvious. And when Paul says uh, here, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. He's saying that whatever we know and understand of the intricacies of God's love, God's will, God's ways, God's purposes, even what we call, if we're in the higher levels of spirituality, theology, which simply means God words, uh, words about God, words to God, words from God. Uh, If we are filled with a kind of theological mind, uh, then that's really not an apath of good. (laughs) If it doesn't come to the surface, and like the hospital scanner, looks into the depths of our body, but comes out with a diagnosis that says to be a flourishing, healthy person, you need to do dot, 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 or have dot, dot, dot by way of treatment. So I want us to see this um, section that we're looking at is what kind of diagnosis and what kind of treatment does it offer in the We will belong to a community of faith, and I'm assuming, for the sake of simplicity, because I don't know you all, that that you're all somehow part of this particular local church. If you're visiting from another church on holidays or whatever, that's great. You can take your thoughts back. But it's assuming that we belong as Christians, because we're privileged to do that in our country, and we can meet together, we can belong together, which is what this whole series is about, called to be the church together, and, and, and to be involved in what God has planned for our lives individually, as being part of the corporate body of the church, in this case here at Mutley Baptist Church. So I want to give you five key words. They're not the only ones, but they're ones that drew to my attention out of this section to help us with this spiritual diagnosis and remedy 
because you know you're not in the perfect church um, because there isn't one. Uh, but to, to, to try as best, you know best, I don't know, but as far as you know best, how can we diagnose and, and, gre- and give a greater sense of life flourishing individually and corporately as a church? So the first key word is a strange one, really, when you're talking about life flourishing. Uh, it's the word sacrifice. Now, that's a word which Paul's first readers would take immediately as a death word. You can picture it in New Testament times, whether it be in Judaism or in the pagan religions uh, that surrounded the world. Remember, this is Rome, the heart of the uh, empire at the uh, New Testament times. Um, Not a Christian empire at all at this stage. In a sense, anything will do. As long as you kind of sacrifice to the gods, if you're a pagan, or in Jewish context, sacrifice to God. It was a death word. And animals would be laid on an altar and slaughtered. And particular Easter, the flow of blood of sacrificial lambs was, was as bad as any torrent of rain that you may have experienced. Blood flowing down the streets. Sacrifice was a death word. And Paul comes along and he says to these Christians, as part of this making sure you're a fully well-functioning spiritual group of people, You've got to be sacrificed. But he throws in another word that transforms it completely. Living sacrifices, not dead sacrifices. Are you dead this morning? Anybody? Put your hand up if you're dead. You're all alive. We're all alive. And we're here as living people, presumably Christians, if you're not a Christian, then hear in and listen and see how it might transform your life. Uh, But you're here as people who have sacrificed your life for Jesus Christ. I did that when I was pre-teenager. And I gave my life to him and said, take my life, use it as you will. And here I am today. Uh, Because as Christians, we, we... sacrifice ourselves for God's will, and that is exactly what it's about. But you know, to sacrifice yourself, you've got to present yourself. Just go back to the imagery of of the uh, hospital scanner. It's no good if you have got to have a scan to see if everything's all right. It's no good whatsoever if you fail to turn up. You've got to be there. It's an essential part of your scan that you are present. And likewise, we have to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Now, let me despiritualize this a little bit by telling you uh, when that we read in, in the New International Version, which I, I read, it says this is our uh, spiritual act of worship. Paul didn't write that. The word that Paul wrote was, this is your logical worship. Now, if you kind of like um, have a, a, a spiritualized version of, of, of everything and, uh, and logic spells routine, it spells kind of church orderliness and church patterns and um, how we do things. Logic is a kind of, um, it's a clinical word, isn't it? 
But Paul says, present your bodies as living sacrifices because this is an obvious thing to do. It's a sensible thing to do. To use his word, it's a logical thing to do. But it's before God, and that therefore makes it a theological thing to do. It's God logic that if you want to have life, you have to have a living sacrifice. And so Paul says the key to this involved community is that everybody has to do the obvious thing, to do the logical thing. And it's logical to go into a scanner if you are suspected of having some malady, possibly a tumour or whatever, and it's logical to say, I don't want to live with this tumour, so I better go for the scan. And Paul says, it's logical that you've got to sacrifice because there's no sacrifice, there's no life. Simple as that. And he goes on to say, which brings me to my second word, it's the word transformation. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word here is a word that we sometimes use in English, uh, metamorphosis, meaning to change form. It's a biological process. It happens when seeds become seedlings and, uh, and then they grow and they become flowers or fruit or veg or whatever and it changes. It's a biological change and that's what we all do in our bodies as we grow from a newborn through to being decrepit and uh, eventually pass away because it's the natural change of life, metamorphosis, transformation. But look at how Paul says it, this transformation. He says, what's it from and what's it to? It's not a renewing of the mind, it's by the renewing of mind. That's the mechanism. But the, the changes, quoting Paul, conforming to the pattern of this world... Two, being able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. And there are two opposites there. There's the pattern of this world and then there's God's plan and knowing it. So the transformation is towards knowing and doing God's will. Testing and approving it. This is a new world change. And Paul elsewhere used the language that if anybody belongs to Jesus, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And Paul says, what you've got to do is what has happened in theory, if you like, about becoming a Christian has to work in, in the very fibre of your being so that you are transformed to know God's will. And sadly, and it's a bit of a dichotomy, there are Christians, you may be one of them, I'm not being critical, there are Christians who belong to God, uh, they're, they're children of God, but they don't know what God's will is for them. And if you're in that position this morning, I hope as we look at, at this, you will see that actually God can transform you by the renewing of your mind so that you can know his will. 
and you can live as an involved member of community rather than on, on the edges of the Christian community. And the third word um, helps us to get some focus on how to uh, bring about a remedy. It's the word humility. Look at verse 3. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. So Paul here uh, is, is saying that, um, you know, there's a possibility that you could kind of over-egg your faith here. Uh, you could be a bit um, arrogant about it. Uh, you could think, well, this is it. I'm here now. What, what are we going to do? Let me tell you, I'm here. I'm, you know, the next best thing to Jesus for you. And if you do what I tell you, uh, this will be the most involved, caring, loving community. Except that none of you would trust me that that was true. Uh, because we all know what we're each like. And we can see through arrogance, can't we? We can see through pride. We can see through somebody thinking, I'm, th- I'm not sure it's the glory of God they want or the glory of themselves. We can spot a fraud, can we not? I said fraud, not a fraud. That's my surname. Uh, so, but we can spot it. And I want to say this. Paul is, I'm not disputing what he says at all. But there's also an equal and opposite problem. And in my experience of, of working in churches, well, all my life, but um, uh, certainly formerly working in churches for over 30 years as a minister, I don't think the, the, the sum total of my burdens for the churches I've worked in are about people who are over-arrogant and too self-confident of their gifting before God. My concern has been overwhelmingly from people who've said to me, as bluntly as this, I I love God, I know I'm his, but he hasn't given me anything which I can do to serve him. And I try to say to people graciously like that, why do you think that when God said uh, that I will equip the church, I will equip the saints, that's the New Testament word for a Christian, I will equip them with everything they need for life, living sacrifice, working for me, except you. Why did he single you out so much if you feel I haven't got anything to give? And I've heard so many Christians say to me over the years, uh, I love the Lord, but I, I don't see what I can do for the church. So in other words, they want to say, I believe in community as long as I'm not involved in it myself. And, and as, as much as humility um, can be needful to somebody who's overconfident, I think for every one of those that genuinely need humility, there are probably a dozen who actually need to come to humility from false humility because actually if we believe that God has called and equipped us as a church but I personally don't have anything to give to that the bottom line is that in biblical terms is the horrible word blasphemy we wouldn't think we were blaspheming 
But somebody who uses the name of Jesus literally in vain, we would call a blasphemer possibly. But blasphemy is to contradict God, to attribute to God something that is wrong or take away from God something that is right. And to say God has not gifted me to do anything in the church is blasphemy because you're calling God a liar. When he said every part of the body has a purpose. So if you're saying, I'm part of the body, but I don't have a purpose, you're actually calling God a liar, and you're saying, actually, God got it wrong, I know the truth. And I guess the two uh, reasons uh, for saying that uh, might be an excuse because you don't want to sacrifice yourself to become a living offering to God, um, or... It's just too much trouble to want to commit and be involved in the body of Christ. I, I don't know, they're just two thoughts that come to my uh, mind, but only you can work that out. But humility neither exaggerates or never devalues what God has put into our lives. And if I can say this to you, if you are sensing in your spirit that you, you've teetered one way or the other, in that, the only reason God wants you to come into the genuine humility is because when you do, he can empower your life and you will flourish because you are walking in his will. And that's why, going back to the verse 1, Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice so that the renewing of your mind can help you to discern his good and rightful will. So it's a good thing. That's why it's like a hospital scam. It's to highlight what is wrong and to bring some cure. And essential to that is humility but not false humility. Our fourth of five words is the word diversity. That comes in verses four to eight, and this is the kind of typical uh, section that we tend to think of. And um, Paul uses this body language three times in the New Testament. He uses it here with the Romans. He uses it in Corinthians and he uses it in Ephesians. And the whole imagery is this imagery of, of, of a body with different parts. And, and it's about the outworking of what we often call spiritual gifts. I'll come to that in a minute. Um, but the point is, of course, that there's a diversity. So we're only talking about diversity here in terms of God's apportioning these gifts and contributions uh, to church life. We're not all the same, we were never meant to be, that's taken as given here, but the significance is that each member belongs to all the others. Now this takes a transformed mind to believe, because it's not entirely logical that my arm belongs to my leg. I, I can accept that my arm kind of is connected to my leg by the rest of my torso, but my arm isn't my leg, it doesn't belong to my leg, and my leg doesn't belong to my arm. And yet, within this imagery, Paul goes further than that human logic. And if we make it theological, in God's logic, each part actually belongs to each other, beyond the human uh, logic, if you like. And so that makes it even stronger to me 
of how Paul is saying that you actually belong to each other. Now, that's got to take more than human logic to believe. You know, and I, I won't do the usual routine saying, look around at those around you and think, I belong to them and they belong to me. You might kind of balk at some bits. You might think, oh, thank you for the relief of that one or, or whatever. But that is what God is saying. We belong to each other, warts and all. That's what we are. Now, if you're going to belong to each other like that and you're going to work together, you've got to have a good sense of confidence in that, haven't you? And that confidence will not come from thinking, I better do the right thing. All that will do is it will last until it can last no more and you'll collapse back into, I'm not going to contribute because I get upset and somebody's complained and whatever. We've got to have it. And that's where it comes back to the renewing of our minds. We're not working as a local community group. We're not working as a special interest club. We're working as the kingdom of God. It's got to take more, hasn't it, to be able to be like that. But that is what Paul is trying to get out of this. In the end, what he's saying is, this is a biological, life-giving connection, not a legal requirement. And we've got to go on the basis of biology, spiritual biology, that this is our very core. There is no option. There are no go-it-alone Christians. We are made to be together. And almost entirely through the New Testament, when you read the word you, it's plural. Literally, plural. So it means you all. I just wish somebody would write a translation of the New Testament that wherever it said you plural, because as it does, as it does in, in Greek, they put you all. And you would be amazed. You would hardly ever see a single you, sometimes. But it's always togetherness. It's always belonging. But of course, for us, the big issue is it would be fine if everybody was like me. If everybody saw things as I saw them, then we'd be fine, wouldn't we? The trouble is you see it differently and uh, you see my gifts as not being this and I think they are and so forth. And yet there's a diversity that is fundamental to existence and it's bound up in all these things except the one that I have yet to come to. The fifth and final one, verses 9 to 13, is love. Love is an extremely cheap word. Uh, I love ice cream. Really? I love Coronation Street. Really? I love your new dress. That might be a very welcome comment. But can you love a dress? Can you love an ice cream? I personally like to save the word love at least for people. People who are made in the image of God. All of us. And love is especially a word to give to God. So much so that the New Testament effectively, and Paul single-handedly, created a completely new word for the love of God. Agape, you may be familiar with it. Um, love is way beyond the flippancy that we use of it. And the other thing is that we tend to think of love almost only as an emotion. Love is an emotion, and emotions uh, do kind of build um, 
shaping of, of what we do uh, with love as an emotion. But I want to say that a full picture of love in the Bible is not just an emotional experience, but love takes on actions because of that uh, emotional experience. Let me take probably the best and most familiar verse of the New Testament to explain this. John chapter 3, verse 16. I won't read it you all. You probably know it. For God so loved the world, he... Go on, give me a word. He gave. Gave, give, is a verb. It's to do something. God so loved. He was so compassionate to the world he had made, which had gone away from him, that he didn't say, oh, I love them to bits, even though they've gone away. I'll just look at them and I'll just think nice thoughts and I'll feel nice feelings about them, even though they've made a bit of a mess of the world I've put them in. His love took the form of action. For God so loved, he gave and gave and gave and he keeps on giving and giving and giving and will never stop. Because love, his, it's his emotion and it's his action, all bound up into one. Love is to feel and to act. And so without loving unity... The body of Christ is dead. Love allows the body of Christ to flourish. And I simply ask you a question at this point. Are you part of that flourishing, the flourishing of this local church or the one that you are ordinarily committed to? Being commanded to love is a difficult thing. If I said to you, right, from this sermon, I want you all to gather in the huddle at the end of the service, and I want you to just, I'm commanding you to love each other. What do you think my success rate would be? I would have thought almost zero. Because love, although it is a command, it doesn't come as a command. It comes with all the passion of God to say, this is how I've made you to be. So these five key words from me won't make uh, an apath of difference if I just say to you, right, I've given you these five words, go away and do it. By the time you'd had your Sunday lunch, you'd probably think, I'll just get over that sermon and hope next week's is a bit easier. Let me take a different angle as to uh, how uh, you might deal with this in a way that's motivational rather than dictatorial, though that's not what I'm trying to be. And it comes from God, not from me. I said to you a few minutes ago that there are three texts in Paul's writings where he makes this connection between the body imagery, hands and feet. 1 Corinthians is the most built-up picture of that, but relating to the gifts and the unity within diversity. Here in Romans 12, um, it says that God does that. It is God who does this uh, in us. You'll be able to know and understand God's perfect will. And the word God, uh, in general terms, tends to uh, refer to God the Father uh, in, in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 12, which is a church filled with spirituality, but dubious at times, uh, and arrogance, the very thing Paul uh, says is bad here, uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, it's not surprising that Paul says 
he talks about the spiritual gifts. So in 1 Corinthians 12, it is the Spirit who gives the gifts. The other main text is Ephesians 4, which was part of this series a few weeks ago. But in Ephesians 4, there's an elaborate statement about Christ came down and Christ ascended to the right hand of God and Jesus Christ gave gifts to people as he willed. Now, can you see where I'm going with this? It's not wrong, but it's not entirely right to talk about the gifts as being spiritual gifts because out of the three texts, one says God the Father, one says Jesus the Son, and one says the Holy Spirit give gifts. So, for want of a better expression, I would say we need to talk about Trinitarian gifts because all the Godhead, Father, Son and Spirit, are givers of these gifts. Now, what does that mean? It means that it's God who has done all this and bluntly the entire Trinity have worked together in love to call and equip you to be what you are and to be what you uh, should be. Here we are. Oh, we've gone. We had it for a brief moment. All the Trinity working for you. There you go. All the Trinity, as you are sat in church this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have, in the best sense of the word, colluded, got their heads together, and said, I don't know, Jill. If there's a Jill here, it's nothing personal. Um, um, uh, what are we going to do with Jill? And I'm being informal, but I hope you know, I mean, I'm being up to our Jill. We're going to give her this skill, this ability, and she is going to use it, and she's going to flourish, and the church will be better for what Jill is doing. Is anybody called Jill here, by the way? There you are. I suppose that's quite good. If you was Jill, though, you'd be well chuffed by now, wouldn't you? Um, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just put your name in. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together to say your name. Go on, shout your name out. There you are. All you, everyone individually, Father, Son, and Spirit have worked together so that you could uniquely be what God has called you to be at this moment in this church. And guess what? By doing that, and by us all doing that, what are we doing? We are replicating the exact unity of the three diverse figures of the Godhead. So if ever you think to yourself, I don't know how a church can ever be so integrated, so involved that everything can work together smoothly, you have a great model to follow. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Folks, I'm going to draw to an end quite abruptly now, because if that doesn't convince you, I'm done. I can't say any more. So let's stop. Let's just close our eyes. You just have your moment with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, say what you need to say about being part of an involved community. You may want to say sorry. 
that you've devalued your gifts in you, his gifts in you. You might want to say sorry that you've elevated yourself through the gifts he's given you. Say what you need to say, and then I'll close in prayer, and someone else will draw us on towards the end of the service. Thank you this morning that you have called us into your kingdom. Forgive us, Lord, if individually or corporately we have forgotten that we have been drawn away from the world that we knew and its thinking and its practices and its ways. And that we've forgotten that we've come into your kingdom, which is new, which is different, which is alive and flourishing based on living sacrifices. Lord, if anyone here this morning has felt a bit despondent that they don't feel they belong as they should or discouraged that they believe they have an involved contribution that they could make that's not been seen or used. Lord, whatever concerns people might have through your word, I pray, Lord, that a bit like the hospital scanner, whatever shows up as being worrying will simply lead to a cure and that great flourishing will come out of individual lives. Lord, make us what you want to be. Help us to be what you've called us to be. Lord, may we feel equipped people. May we feel strong. May we feel involved. But in all this, Lord, may we feel very humble that you have chosen to take us and equip us and make us what you want us to be. Lord, I simply ask that we will be faithful, soberly examining our lives and giving ourselves to your glory and your kingdom. Amen.